While women faculty of color are underrepresented in the professoriate, they are responsible for a disproportionate share of faculty workload. In this episode, we discuss strategies that can be used by individual faculty and by institutions to create a more equitable workload distribution. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Kane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer, and features guests doing important research and advocacy work to make higher education more inclusive and supportive of all learners. Our guest today is Shavella Pittman. Shavella is a professor of sociology at Dominican University. She is also the founder of Effective and Efficient Faculty, a faculty development company that works extensively with faculty and campuses across the country to help them develop strategies for inclusive learning environments and the retention of diverse students and faculty. Her research interests and expertise include higher education, interpersonal interactions, and marginalized statuses, research methods, and statistics. Chevelle is also the author of a chapter in Picture a Professor, edited by our friend Jessamine Newhouse. And that's what we'll be talking about here today. Welcome back, Chevelle. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me back. I enjoyed my last conversation, so I'm looking forward to this one. We did too. And it's about time we have you back on again. Today's teas are, Chevelle, are you drinking tea? I am. I have a lemon and ginger tea today. Oh, that sounds so delightful. And I am drinking a dragon oolong tea today. Oh, that's a difference for you, John. It is. It's been in the office for a while, and it's been sitting there feeling lonely. (laughs) We have a good variety today because I have a hot cinnamon spice tea. Ooh. (laughs) Very nice. (laughs) We couldn't get, I think, many more different (laughs) options today. (laughs) We've invited you here today to discuss your chapter in Picture Professor, entitled Empowered Strategies for Women Faculty of Color, navigating teaching inequities in higher ed. While most colleges have substantially increased the diversity of their student body in the last decade or so, faculty still remain substantially less diverse. Could you talk a bit about the representation of women faculty of color among college faculty? Yes, absolutely. I think that people think that there are more of us than there are. (laughs) I think people know the numbers are low, but I don't think they realize how low the numbers are. So specifically, when you take a look, I think if we're looking just at women, white women are 35% of U.S. college faculty and women of color are about 7% total. So across all the groups, there's about 7% of us. So 3% Asian, about 2% Black, less than 1% of Latinos and about, you know, less than 1% of Native Americans. So I think that with all of the talk of diversity, the valuing of diversity, the saying we're going to do the this and the that, people think that our numbers are much, much larger and they are really, really low. And they don't match the population in the U.S. That's usually the measure of whether or not groups are underrepresented or not, if they match the numbers in the population. And so, yes, very, very few of us out there. So we were just talking about how faculty of color are disproportionately underrepresented among faculty generally, but also among tenured faculty. 
And while this might be partly the result of recent increased efforts to diversify the professoriate, you note that this is also due to many women faculty of color leaving academia because of the higher demands placed on them. Can you talk a little bit about the additional labor that's required of women faculty of color in particular? Yes. One thing I didn't say before is that, and this sort of, I think, lays upon this question as well, is that even though we're underrepresented in college faculty, we're overrepresented in certain types of roles. So more of us are likely to be contingent faculty. We're more likely to be at minority serving institutions. We're more likely to be at community colleges. We're more likely to be at the lower ranks if we're tenure track at all. So part of the reason I'm adding it here is because it connects a little bit to the additional labor that's required by women faculty of color, just women instructors of color, which is that we tend to have teaching overloads. We tend to have like actual higher teaching loads. Somebody might be teaching like one niche course on their research topic, like a seminar of like five to 10 students. But then women faculty of color are teaching, if they're teaching one course, it's like a service course with like, you know, 75 to 300 students. So even if the load is the same, what the load looks like is different because we end up in a lot of these service courses. But in actuality, the load usually is not the same. We usually have the higher load. A lot of faculty that are from privileged statuses, they're buying out of their teaching in some way, shape or form. They're reassigned in some sort of leadership role. So that person really might have a load of one course, whereas a woman of color who's an instructor or faculty might have a load of three, four five, six courses if they're teaching an overload to sort of make up for whatever, financial things sometimes usually, but sometimes that's just the way people are assigning us. In addition to actually having a higher teaching load, they tend to have more labor dealing with colleague and student resistance to their teaching. So that takes effort. That takes cognitive load. That takes emotional load. That takes affective load to deal with colleagues and students that are actively resisting your teaching. So that's some of the additional labor. And then the prep that comes with sort of trying to navigate some of the inequities of like having too high of a teaching load and having people who are on a regular basis challenging your teaching. There's all sorts of ways in which labor ends up sort of multiplying, but those are the ways that sort of make the most sense to discuss straight out. Teaching overloads, student challenges, and then like navigating all of the things. I'm sure some of that also includes increased mentorship among certain populations of students, getting asked to provide service on certain kinds of committees that your colleagues are not being asked to do. Absolutely. And then sitting on all the committees that have anything to do with curriculum or pedagogy. And the funny thing is, I rarely mention those. I mean, obviously, the research shows that the women of color are the ones that are providing a lot of that advising, not just to students of color and students that are marginalized. They're providing that advising to all of the students. They're providing that mentoring to all of the students. I tend to not mention those because a lot of times allies or administrators think that it's our choice. And sometimes it is our choice, but give us credit for that. We're doing the labor that the institution says that it values, but we're not giving credit for that. And then sometimes it actually isn't our choice. A lot of people are asked to be on all of those committees. They're asked to write those letters. They're asked to mentor those students. And because we tend to be in these contingent, lower status roles, we don't often feel that we have the space to say no. 
even if we are actually overwhelmed by that labor. So in addition to resistance that may be due to racist attitudes, you also know that one of the reasons why there may be some resistance is that women faculty of color often use somewhat different teaching techniques than the general college faculty. Could you talk a little bit about some of the differences in terms of the methods of teaching that are often adopted by women faculty of color? Yes, absolutely. And it's one of the reasons I wrote this chapter is because a lot of times the narratives that women faculty of color hear about their teaching are negative and they're deficiency-based. And it's because a lot of us don't know the scholarship of teaching and learning. We don't know the pedagogy stuff. We are experts in our discipline, but not of the practices that we're actually using. And so I wrote this chapter because I wanted people to really see all of the wonderful beauties and benefits and all the fantastic things they're doing in their teaching. So I really wanted women faculty of color to have a different narrative about their teaching. So the research is pretty clear about a couple of features about the pedagogy for women faculty of color. We tend to use more innovative, evidence-based and transformative pedagogies. We're more likely to do things like active learning or collaborative teaching. We're more likely to focus on higher order cognitive skills instead of surface learning. We're more likely to have assignments that are connected to the real world. We're also more likely to have assignments that are connected to diversity in some way, shape, or form. We're also more likely to focus on learning goals that are beyond just the straight knowledge and the straight skills. We're more likely to include things that are about affective, emotional, moral, or civic development of students. We're more likely to encourage them to think critically and to think about society in in structural ways. So those are just a couple of examples. And I think that sometimes when folks hear that list or allies, they're like, oh, I do that too. I'm like, okay, yes, no one is saying you don't do that. But as a group, women faculty of color are doing that at a higher rate. They're doing it more often. It's woven through all of their courses. It's not just the course where they happen to have some sort of diversity topic. And so we're engaging in all of these pedagogies that are shown to be transformative, to have like high payoffs for student learning, but no one is acknowledging that. And so I'm glad that you asked that question, but it is one of the reasons that I wrote the chapter. I want women faculty of color to sort of stick their chests out a little bit and be proud (laughs) of all the fantastic things they're doing. And those are things that teaching centers have long been advocating that all faculty do. So it sounds really great. Yes, absolutely. So you talk about these kinds of teaching strategies that are maybe less common and that we certainly advocate for in the teaching center and on this podcast, evidence-based practices, active learning, et cetera. But we also know that faculty who are using these teaching methods face resistance from students in student feedback, for example. Can you talk a little bit about the bias that we see in student evaluations and peer evaluations when looking at these teaching strategies? Yeah. At the end of the day, our colleagues and our students are used to what's familiar, which a lot of times is not what's best practice. So people, they might be used to being taught a particular way, So then when you come in doing active learning, when they're used to being in more of a passive scenario, they're going to resist. They're now thinking you've done something wrong. They already think that you're not credible in some sort of way. And so the fact that you're doing something different, they're using that as evidence that you don't know what you're doing. And it's the same thing with our peers. 
our peers very much so think that the way that they've been doing it is the way that it is to be done. So the moment that you start having some sort of active learning instead of standing in front of the classroom lecturing in a very non-interactive way for like an hour, they're now thinking that you have done something wrong as well. So all of that stuff gets baked into the formal evaluation of teaching. So this is how we end up with these negative narratives of women faculty of color teaching because colleagues are like, what are you doing? You're doing something that's wrong and disruptive and it's not what I'm doing. And then students are complaining to those same colleagues that, hey, this person is doing something that's different, that's wrong and it's disruptive that I don't like. But then that gets baked into the narrative of the teacher is incompetent. They don't know what they're doing. They're getting low evaluations. The peer is evaluating them in ways that are negative. And so it's not aligned at all because what we're doing is actually what the research says we're supposed to be doing. It's just not common practice. And peer evaluations are generally not done by people who have been trained in effective teaching methods or in effective peer evaluation. And they're often more senior members of the faculty who are likely to be using more lecture in their classes. So that problem is a pretty serious one. It would be nice if we could somehow improve on in the institution. It's insane. It's totally insane. And, and the point that you just made, very often that's who's giving feedback to the faculty that I work with, faculty that come to me as clients, is that it is the senior person. It's the chair in their department that's like giving them teaching advice. And I'm like, that's bonkers. Like what they're suggesting, no one would tell you to do. But that person is just so gung-ho that they know what that person needs to do. And usually it's like flat out wrong. It's not even like halfway in the ballpark. It's like completely wrong. So yes, I wish we could solve that. Yeah, and I think there are faculty in, in power who can help to start to solve that. And we need to advocate for evaluations that reflect good teaching and evidence-based practices. That in of itself would move the needle. Absolutely. I mean, I say the same five things over and over again that institutions should be doing the need to sort of monitor and adjust course assignments. So you can keep an eye on what those loads actually are for people to establish a policy for disruptive student classroom behavior so that there's some recourse for faculty who are dealing with students who are resisting, promote faculty development opportunities and reward effective pedagogy. So actually make it a practice so that people know that these are the best practices and that they're actually rewarded for using them, provide training on how to interpret the student ratings, which the student evaluations are their own beast, which is why I separate that from implementing sound practices to evaluate teaching for tenure and promotion. That's more of a holistic thing. And then some campuses don't have teaching centers or they're overwhelmed with other things or they have a specialty on something other than diverse faculty or evaluating teaching, which is why I think places should also allocate resources for faculty to get that sort of support off campus. Like every teaching center, they can't be everything to everybody. And so I say those same things over and over again. Those are the six sort of pieces of advice that I give to institutions over and over again to sort of deal with the teaching inequities that women faculty of color and a lot of other diverse faculty face. In this chapter, you also know that women faculty of color provide many benefits to the students besides the effective teaching methods that they're using in their classes in preparing students for a future career and life in a diverse world. Could you talk a little bit about that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that. People get stuck on the idea of college being a place where students come, you teach them the ABCs and math, they come in, they go out, and that's the end of it. When you really look at the purpose of college, it's actually a much more broad set of outcomes that we want for our students. 
Unfortunately, our more traditional colleagues are focusing on the ABCs and the math, but the faculty that tend to come from diverse backgrounds, including women faculty of color, are focusing on that broader range of skills. So I'll give an example just to make it concrete. So I'm not just saying things that are abstract. The AACU has their essential learning outcomes. And whether you abide by these or not, it's a useful framing. There are four categories. I think most people focus on the knowledge of human cultures and the physical and natural world. That's where you actually learn the ABCs and the math, essentially. And in the intellectual and practical skills, people start inching a little bit into that category. So the critical thinking, writing, those things that skill, teamwork, the very few people actually focus on teamwork and problem solving in terms of goals for college, what faculty are trying to do. But there are two other categories, personal and social responsibility and integrative and applied learning. And the personal and social responsibility are the things that are meant to benefit society. One of the goals of college is to set our students up so that they can actually do well in society, but also to continue society and for it to do well. So some of the goals there are like civic knowledge and engagement, intercultural knowledge, ethical reasoning, foundations and skills for lifelong learning. So those are the things that our women faculty of color are also focusing on in addition to those other categories. The last category is about applying all of the other categories to the real world, which I mentioned in some of their pedagogy. So they absolutely are like, great, you've learned the ABCs, you've learned how to do some math, how to communicate, ethical reasoning. Now we're going to take a look at how does that apply to the water crisis in Flint? So using all the things that they've learned to apply them to new contexts and to complicated problems. So they're doing that as well. So that's how they benefit society by making sure that they're developing well-rounded folks versus just teaching them the ABCs and one, two, threes. So we've talked a lot about the great contributions women faculty of color have in higher education. And we also talked a bit about some of the resistance and barriers that they face. What are some strategies that you offer to faculty of color to overcome some of these biases and inequities, or at least push against them a little bit and give them a little bit of a leg up? The other reason that I wrote this chapter is because in addition to wanting women faculty of color to be able to stick their chest out and be proud, I wanted them to actually be able to be proactive and push back a little bit because the teaching isn't just about the student learning. Like These are people's careers. They just depend on these things for their livelihood. And so the last thing I want is for them to face these inequities and then be out of a job. Essentially, you can't just talk about student learning and not talk about the actual reality of a pending review. So whether it's a review for renewal, a review for tenure, or a review for promotion. And so I made it a point to have a couple of strategies in the chapter of what people can do to sort of deal with these things. And they're, I don't want to say basic, but they're easily attainable keeping in mind that they already have all all this other labor on their shoulders and that institutions should actually be coming up with these solutions, but they're not immediately. So the first thing that I encourage people to do is to have a very intentional teaching narrative, which means most of the people that women faculty of color are going to interact with, they aren't going to actually know the research on our teaching. They're going to have either a neutral or a negative view on our teaching. So you have to have a narrative that's very explicit. You have to have a narrative that's informing people, that's teaching people, that's educating people about what it is that you're doing. So you need to be able to say, 
I engage in these types of pedagogy. They're evidence-based. Here are the learning goals that I'm trying to achieve with these pedagogies. Here's how this is aligned with the university mission. So you have to have a very intentional narrative about your teaching. You can't just be casual about it. You have to be intentional just to be strategic. And then you have to actually share that narrative. So you can't just sort of get it together for your own edification and only in your circles that are trusted. You need to be telling that to allies, to administrators, et cetera, because that's part of educating and informing people that what you're doing is not being an agitator or an outlier. Well, (laughs) you probably are an agitator and outlier, but the thing is you're doing it right. So (laughs) that's what you need to be informed of, that you're actually doing it right. So that narrative has to actually be floating around because otherwise the only narrative out there is that you're deficient in some way, shape or form. And because the way that people currently assess teaching quality is primarily through student evals, which we've already talked. People don't know how to do the numbers. The way they do peer reviews is horrible. You have to have some other sort of evidence that what you're doing is effective. And so you have to document student learning. So you have to have a way that you're collecting and analyzing and sharing data that shows that what you're actually doing in your classroom is successful. And you can't leave that up to someone else because those others probably aren't going to have a lot of experience dealing with folks who have teaching inequities. They're not used to it being make or break for your career. So you have to be in a habit of collecting your own data or analyzing your data, communicating your own data on student learning. And it could be simple stuff. It could be like a pre-post test, maybe the first day of class, you give students like a 10 item quiz of things that they should know by the middle of the class to end a class. And then you give a post-test. It could be doing something similar at the beginning and end of a, a course session. You could have students write multiple drafts and you do an analysis of an early draft and you do one of a later draft. So it doesn't have to be labor intensive, but you do have to have your own data because unfortunately the data that people are using as student learning isn't actual evidence of student learning. So those are the things that I would suggest that women faculty of color do until allies and institutions come to speed with the other suggestions that I made. I love that you're advocating building it into your process, that it's not an add-on, but could be really informative to what you're doing. And therefore, it's just part of what you're doing, because otherwise it often feels like so much extra. Yes. I feel so guilty sometimes telling folks like, yes, you're juggling an actual teaching overload. Yes, you're juggling a mentoring overload. Yes, you're having to deal with all this resistance. And let me add this extra thing to your plate. But it's required because it's going to give you a little bit of space to reflect on what you're doing, breathe, be acknowledged for it instead of being punished for it, I guess, so to speak. But yes, very much so baked into what you're already doing. So I like to tell people the easy lift things to do. I like that strategy. One of the nice things with this approach is that to the extent to which faculty are sharing teaching narratives about effective practice and documenting student learning, that can have some nice, well, in economics, we refer to them as externalities that while they benefit the students directly from the use of these techniques, to the extent to which these are shared with other faculty members who then can learn about more effective ways of increasing student learning, those practices can become more diffuse in the institution, which is something I think many of us would like to see. Absolutely. I talk about that explicitly because that's what I want allied colleagues and that's what I want faculty developers to do. I'm suggesting things at the institutional level for sure, but the things that people can do at an individual level are to mimic these practices, to make them normal so that it's not just 
the diverse faculty or the marginalized faculty or the women faculty of color that are doing these things, but so that everybody's doing it. So the more normative it gets, it would benefit student learning and teaching all around, but it very much so would make it be much more of a mainstream practice. It just would be beneficial to everybody. I think it's helpful too to have a, a box of strategies that you can use as an individual and with your colleagues to kind of have a ground up approach as well as institutional strategies from the top down so that maybe we can meet somewhere in the middle. <laughs> Absolutely. I love the middle. I'm a social psychologist, so I love the middle. <laughs> I think so many things honestly get done at the middle. I mean, exactly because of what you just said. I think of an example of that. One of the things I was suggesting that institutions can do to deal with these inequities is for them to establish a policy for disruptive student classroom behavior. That's very much one that an ally colleague could do in their own classroom, that a faculty developer could suggest to a whole bunch of faculty, like a cohort or two of faculty, that if the policy doesn't come from the top, it can very much so come from the bottom. As people start to see it, it becomes more normative. Students start to realize different things help and inhibit my learning and different professors. It just makes it normative that it's not the wild, wild west, essentially, in the classroom. I love this reflective approach, too, in terms of having your own teaching narrative and sharing that, especially when sometimes you really do feel beaten down, taken advantage of, (laughs) tossed around. It gives time and space and requires time and space to recognize success or to recognize that what you have done has actually made a difference and to see that other narrative. Absolutely. And it's one of the things I love most about working with faculty is women of color will tell me like, oh, you know, I do this thing in my class and they'll describe just the logistics of what they're doing and what they're trying to do. And I usually have like a term for it. Like I'm like, oh, that's X, Y, Z pedagogy. And like, that's the goal. And they're like, oh, so they're doing all this fantastic stuff. They just don't always have the language for it to be able to to talk about it sort of out front. So I love being able to give them the language and say, hey, this thing that you're doing that students are very clear that they hate (laughs) and are telling everybody that they hate, that this is actually the right thing to do. And here's how you can communicate it to your colleagues that this is what you're doing. This is where you're trying to get students to go. And this is why it's important for you to do it. So those conversations are the best for me because people seem to just like intuitively know how to bring folks into the learning a lot of times from their own experiences, either being taught well or not being taught well as diverse folks. So being able to give them the language from the scholarship of teaching and learning has been a very powerful thing for people to experience. One of the things I wanted to follow up on is we talked about sharing the teaching narrative with colleagues, but what about sharing it with students? Would you recommend that to women faculty of color? Absolutely. I always recommend this to my diverse faculty. And first of all, I have them put it on their syllabus, usually as an abbreviated teaching philosophy statement. There's a lot of research about like transparency and learning and how it aids students learning. And I think what it does is it makes it really plain to students that what you're doing is backed up in the research. So even if it's not familiar to them, it's an evidence-based practice. It also makes it really plain to students that the learning goals that you have for them, again, are backed up by the research because some of the resistance that students give women faculty of color sometimes is they'll say, oh, this is your opinion or this is an agenda. It's like, no, that's not what's going on here at all. I'm trying to actually build your skill in this particular way. And this is the goal. I'm not trying to convert you to a way of thinking. I'm trying to get you to achieve this particular skill to have this particular outcome. 
So I always advise diverse faculty to put these things on their syllabus as a way of communicating to students that these are evidence-based practices. These are known and lauded learning outcomes. So I very much so always make sure that they they engage in a particular practice on their syllabus. Again, it's strategic, but it's very helpful. (laughs) And we can put a plug in for a podcast that we just recorded with Marianne Winklemas, who talks about transparency in learning and teaching and the benefits that result from that. So that's a nice tie-in. Absolutely. Her work is what I'm usually reading about Tilt. So yes, I love her work. You know, Shavella, I think we often see underrepresented faculty having a lot of struggle, but we also know that this group of faculty is really passionate about what they do. That's why they explore different kinds of pedagogies and believe in evidence-based practices. What advice do you have to help us all see that joy in teaching and have a really positive way of looking at our roles as faculty members at our institutions? What I would really like to see and where my work has always existed, but where it's about to go more fully on the front stage, like this is the backstage version of my work, is that I would love for this work to be more about faculty wellness, about faculty development and success, instead of just about faculty productivity. So I'm very much interested in whole faculty development. So work is one part of what we do, but we actually have to have full, rewarding, sustaining lives away from work in order for us to even bring the best version of ourselves and for us to be able to contribute at work. So that's what I would like people to be much more open about in the front stage and to think about much more in the front stage is sort of faculty wellness overall. And the timing couldn't be better for these conversations. Burnout was already existing for a lot of our women faculty of color, a lot of our diverse faculty, the pandemic, George Floyd, like all of these things made it worse. And so maybe this is the point where institutions will really be curious to pursue it as they see that people are quiet quitting and great resignation and burning out, browning out, et cetera. Maybe this will be the time for them to actually start investing in the the development and the wellness of faculty as humans not just as cogs in a machine. It's interesting when you're framing it like that, Shavella, because we often talk about things being really student-centered. And I'm always thinking like, why aren't we making it people-centered? Because faculty and staff are also part of the bigger community of learning and making sure that learning kind of is happening up and down and around. And that's really what higher ed is about. But sometimes it doesn't feel that way. No, it doesn't at all. And depending on what day you catch me, tell you, well, I'm saying it in a flip way. I'll say I care less about the students. I care more about the faculty. But for me, caring for the faculty is caring for the students. So it doesn't mean that I don't care about the students and I'm not focused on them. I'm focused on them by being focused on the faculty. So I'm very, very, very faculty centered in what I do and and staff centered as well. But just trying to shift the lens so that we're not just only looking at students, because like you said, there are other parts of that equation. Come to find out we're all humans. Yes, turns out. (laughs) Who knew? (laughs) We always end with the question, what's next? Well, again, my book is still forthcoming. So I have an entire book that's for women faculty of color about navigating these teaching inequities. So that chapter is just sort of a sliver of perspective shifting and strategic advice so that women faculty of color can be successful 
And then the book is like a much larger version, a much more in-depth version for how people can, again, have a shift in lens on their teaching, protect themselves from inequities. And there is a chapter in it about joy, about engaging in joy. So that's the thing that's what's next. And I'll continue to do things that promote for faculty to be whole, well, happy people, not just cogs in a machine. (laughs) Yeah, I'm in it for the joy. Let's have more joy. (laughs) Joy is good. Absolutely. We're looking forward to talking to you again when your book is ready to come out. Absolutely. I'll be back here with bells on ready to chat about it. Well, thank you. It's always great talking to you. And we're looking forward to that next conversation. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. It's always our pleasure. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teafortteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.